The man, sometimes known as Europe's Elon Musk, was a childhood refugee from Bosnia who went on to become the architect behind the world's first electric supercar. Growing up in Germany and Croatia, Rimac was an electronic star in high school and invented a glove that acted both as a keyboard and a mouse for a computer. His career in the auto industry started after he converted the 1984 BMW E303 series into a battery-powered vehicle to compete in races. This caught the attention of a member of the Abu Dhabi royal family who asked him to build an electric hypercar. Now Rimac Automobili is a global leader in electric vehicle technology, selling limited edition supercar as well as supplying electric parts to the makers of performance cars. In 2021, Volkswagen luxury sports car unit Porsche agreed to join a joint venture with Rimac Automobili and handed Rimac majority control of the iconic Bugatti brand. Matej Rimac, it's a pleasure to have you at IMD. Thank you so much. And with intrigued to start maybe with you as a person, as a leader, where does your passion for cars came from? Well, I don't know. I just know the stories from my parents that I was crazy about cars before I could walk or talk. And as you say, I was born in Bosnia, which was at that time, especially one of the poorest countries in Europe, still is today. And where I'm from, it's like the poorest region of Bosnia. So there were no roads and barely any cars there. And when the war started, my parents moved to Germany and I was like two years old and my parents tell me how crazy I was to see all the cars around me all of a sudden, you know, just uh, taking everything in. And um, I was just born with it for some reason without my parents really having anything to do with cars. Uh, so I was just fascinated by cars all my life. And today when I try to rationalize it, I have kind of an explanation <laughs> to myself. But all my life I wanted to do something with cars, so I'm very lucky that today I am. <laughs> Fascinating. And, and who, did you have help or did you credit someone to become an entrepreneur? Because from, from loving cars as a kid to actually decide to do cars <laughs> is a big jump. So who do you credit? Yeah, well, it's a long journey. I mean, I'm not that old, but like, you know, <laughs> I feel like I lived several lives already. We moved from Germany back to Croatia 10 years later and I was going to high school there. Basically, that's where it started. And I wasn't a great student, especially because it was very difficult for me to adapt from German school to the Croatian one. And the culture was very different and it was a shock to me. But I was always fascinated by technology and cars. So I wanted to do something on my own and I was building stuff in my garage. And my professor wanted me to go to competitions, like there was a local competition in the area, like for the school where I'm from. And I didn't want to go because I wasn't a great student, but I went because he wanted me to, so I did. And surprisingly, I won that competition. Then I went to the national level where I had even less hopes, but I won that as well. And then they sent me all around the world. And when I was 17 year old, years old, I wrote two patents. I won a bunch of global awards. And then, you know, I was 18 and I had to go to university and wanted to start finally doing something with cars as I could have a driver's license. And I bought a 1984 BMW that you mentioned because that was the easiest way to start racing. I wanted to race. It had, of course, an old combustion engine, which blew up. And I had basically three heroes in my life. Nikola Tesla who was also born in Croatia and he invented the electric motor. And I was always fascinated by this electric motor and why nobody is making electric cars that are exciting. Because at that time, 15 years ago, electric cars were boring, ugly, slow. Christian Koenigsegg? a Swedish guy who built his own car and own car company. He started in 1994 and he was like a big hero to me. And Horacio Pagani, 
who did something similar in Italy. So these were my three heroes and I was looking up to them. And when the combustion engine on my BMW blew up, I, you know, inspired by Nikola Tesla, I wanted to show that I can build a race car that's exciting and fun. And then later down the line, it's a long story, I wanted to build my own car, just like Christian Koenigsegg and Horacio Pagani did. So it was like a transition from high school to, you know, my first car to, you know, trying to do something in my garage and then trying to figure it out along the way. But the toughest thing was actually, you know, everybody asked me, how did you get the idea? But that's like, I always say ideas are worthless. People are coming to me with ideas. It's easy to have the idea to make a car, but the process to get there, the last 15 years have many times been hell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I bet, I bet. And you, so you virtually stripped the old BMW's engine, all the combustion out and say, we're going to stick an electric motor in there. Yeah, uh, <laughs> actually, my idea was to build in another engine, but that was too expensive to me, like from another newer BMW, but it was too expensive. So I was like, okay, and I'm already going to invest a lot of effort and money into this for an 18-year-old. You know, I'm going to do something special. So I was the national champion for electronics. I was crazy about cars. I was fascinated with Nikola Tesla with his invention. So I was like, okay, I'll make this into an electric race car, which I did. And the first version, of course, was very basic, very rudimentary, like from with forklift parts and so on, because at that time there were no electric car right. components available, which was a good thing. And basically, in the end, the only reason why my company exists today, because I started pretty early focusing on high performance electric stuff. I uh, had to rebuild this all the time in my garage and make the car better and faster and started competing. And that was at the time when nobody saw any electric cars on the road anywhere, let alone race cars right. with electric powertrain. So I went to races and everybody was laughing at me what I was doing with a washing machine uh, on a racetrack. And, you know, I heard all the jokes like if they can charge their phones on my car and stuff like that. And uh, it was, you know, that was basically the best time for me because I was building the car in a garage and then went to racing and there I would have an accident or, you know, the car would go up in flames or whatever and I would bring it back to the garage and improve it. Next race, got better, right. better and then people started to pay attention and that's where I got the first traction from also investors. Oh. So I picked that up. That was an interesting. So I'm I was looking for you know the calls that you made. At one point, I think it was the Middle Eastern investor yeah. asked you to relocate your production to the Middle East, and you said no, right? Yeah. Well, you know, I had no idea how to build a company, and it's it's very <laughs> different than it is today. Like today, so much data and information is available on the internet. Like, you know, we are here nearby Geneva, uh, and one of the biggest things for a car guy was always the Geneva Auto Show. So right. I remember course, going yeah. to Geneva, you know, to meet Christian Koenigsegg. I wanted, you know, just to go there to find the guy. And I didn't know how he looked like, uh, which is unthinkable today. You know, you, you have hundreds of interviews of Christian Koenigsegg or myself, or, you know, of people like that on the Internet. But at that time, I had no idea. So I went to the Koenigsegg stand, looked for the most serious looking guy. And there was a very nice uh, person who wanted to talk to, who was willing to talk to me. And it was Christian's father <laughs> who pointed me to Christian and later. So, you know. There was no startup culture, especially in Croatia, like there was zero. There was no venture capital funds. There was no funding available. Nobody talked about that. How do you do like a seed round, an A round, a B round? Like I had no idea about this stuff. Because my BMW and my racing was in the media in Croatia, like, hmm, look at this crazy teenager uh, building an electric race car. 
uh, people knew about me and a guy who worked for a royal family in the Middle East approached me and said, hmm, this is interesting. Like I work for this family, they are always looking for opportunities. Like, do you have something to share? And at that time I met Adriano, uh, who is still today with us. And he, he was a designer at that time for General Motors. I realized that taking a combustion car like a BMW and putting an electric powertrain in totally was the wrong way which many car manufacturers just figured out <laughs> 15 years later <laughs> or very recently. So I was like, let's develop our own car. If Christian could do it, if Horatia could do it, I want to build my own car. And it was just a project where he was working for GM in Germany and I was in Croatia on university. So we would work on weekends, after work, emails, you know, there was nothing real. So we put together a brochure, you know, drawings of the car, sketches, target specifications, power, speed, you know, all that stuff. And gave it to this gentleman. He went to the Middle East with that and called me a few days later and he said, they would like to buy two cars. I was like, great, but there is no cars. There is no company, it's just sketches. And then the next day he called me and asked, okay, so how much money do you need? And soon I got a term sheet on my table and I didn't know what a term sheet was. And I couldn't find a lawyer in Croatia who knew what a term sheet wow, was. Wow, okay. To and you know, of course, the, the amount of money I thought you need to develop a car was totally wrong. Totally, <laughs> like by several orders of magnitude wrong. But I, yeah. thinking back today, if I had worked, you know, even for a few months, if I was an internship in BMW for a few months as an engineer, uh, I would have known how impossible it is to do what I wanted to do. Right. So not knowing, going into it totally blue-eyed, right, having right, no right. idea what I want, what was awaiting me, was actually an enabler to actually be crazy enough to do it. Right. <laughs> Which I've heard before. You know, sometimes ignorance really helps to do things that are seemingly impossible, and and, and then you did it. The the second point I picked up was uh, uh, Richard Hammond. You know, from the British TV series, uh, crushed your Concept One car here in Switzerland. Oh yes. Was that a setback or? Oh man, I lost. I mean, Richard like, has crushed several cars yeah. before, right? <laughs> Oof, that's also a long story. Like, I'll try, I'll try to compress it. In hindsight, you know, everybody says great advertisement. Lots of people knew about our company because of that, but it cost me probably like at least fifteen years of my life. Really? Uh, yeah, because so we were like a hundred people at that time, right? And you know, we were always struggling. Like, I barely ever had the money on the account to pay the next salary. So it was always like fight for survival in the last moment. Like we were on the, on the knife's edge for most of our, of our time. Like just barely being above water or oftentimes going underwater and you know, just jumping out in the last moment. So we were around maybe 100 people at that time uh, when Top Gear wanted to test our car. And we were like, you know, we were a very small company with super limited resources, it was our first product you don't want to risk that something happens there. And they were really pursuing us, like pushing us a lot to, to give them the car. And whenever we came up with a reason why not to, to give them the car, like there's no charging infrastructure where you want to do it, they come up with, oh, here's a place where there is charging infrastructure. And, you know, so they came up with solutions. We were like, okay, let's do it. So they did the interesting series with like the past, a fully combustion car, the present with the hybrid car, and the future with Okay. Our car. And it was a week-long test here on Switzerland. They did races and all of that, and our car was blowing the others out of the water, like being a lot faster and so on. They loved the car, everything good. And the last day was this hill climb race, a rally here in Switzerland. And 
uh, they were, had several runs of going up the hill. It was a Saturday and I was in the company with a few other guys working on the weekend and we have the telemetry coming in the car. And the last run, they were going up, everything fine. Our guys call us, you're done. After the week of filming, everything's ready. Packing up, car worked beautifully, uh, was the fastest, good, let's go. And then an hour later, I got the call because it was like, let's do it one more time, you know? And then I got the call and I always remember it. He crashed, he's alive, the car burns. And I just couldn't believe that the car burns and that he had a huge crash. And that was at the time when we were struggling as a company like hell. Just like we didn't know how we will survive because an investor who was supposed to invest turned out as a fraud, long, long story. Um, and we were struggling to find another solution. I didn't know how to pay the salaries already. You know, the, the, um, the customers were nervous. The, the landlord was nervous, wanting to throw me out. You know, all this kind of stuff happened at the same time and then that. And, you know, the car was supposed to go to a customer, which was supposed to be cash into the company to pay the salaries. Now the car is gone. And like, do we even have insurance? Oh, we don't have, but the producer has. So we need to be nice with the producer. We cannot say what happened because we know what happened. We need to shut our mouths and say when, when they want us to say something. Uh, and otherwise we will not get the insurance money. So that was an ordeal where the media was speculating what happened if something was wrong with the car and so on. The car was burning for several days. Batteries, right? So that kind of disasters. Some are more public, some are within closed doors, happen while you grow the company. Luckily, uh, we survived it somehow, but that was like really close. So by that stage, you're, you're still very young. You've, had, uh, you've refused investment from the Middle East. You've, uh, you've had Richard Hammond, and this is a learning, right? And never lend a car to Richard Hammond. Okay, so you've learned. What, what, else, what were your big learning as a leader there? Or what, what, what sort of things would you not never do again? Well, man, uh, <laughs> it's a long so mistake. much, <laughs> you know, now in the meantime, we have received a lot of investment. Like just last year, we've raised 550 million euros uh, of, of uh, bench capital, you want to call it, or growth capital. Uh, I, I sometimes like to say that my investors have invested a billion euros into my education. Right. So <laughs> I hope I got something for it. No, you just learn so much by doing this stuff. I mean, uh, they say you lead a different company every time it doubles. So. I led probably com then 10 completely different companies. And there is so much learnings to take along the way. You know, for example, some people who are amazing for the early stage of the company and are great at improvising and doing something quickly and getting it to 70% are, you know, wrong people to take it from 70 to 100%. And what I realized, what it's best for the company is also best for the people. Sometimes it's better for people to not continue the journey anymore for themselves also to flourish somewhere else. So for different stages of the company, you need different people. Some people can adapt and can follow you all the way. I had to adapt. I'm not sure if I'm still the best person going from the garage to today a 2000 people company. I think while my shareholders and the company believes that I'm still the best, you know, I will continue doing it. But uh, there might be a point where there will be for sure a point where somebody else is better suited to take the company further. And same with other people in the company. You know, some are great for the early stage, some are great for late stage. Uh, or other thing, uh, like I would be very cautious about making any promises or announcements publicly. Because you're being scrutinized at a later point on that. Like, for example, Elon Musk gets criticized a lot for making promises that 
he doesn't deliver. I mean, he over delivers over the moon, literally, <laughs> on other things, you know, yeah. but then he gets scrutinized about something he didn't, thing, yeah. you know. Yeah. So same, same with us as well, especially in a small country like Croatia, where we are totally out of the ordinary. Um, and, you know, we have achieved many things that nobody would have believed possible in that country. But on the other side, I get lots of criticism for something I said when I was like 21 years old, you know. Uh, so I would keep the ball low as much as possible, you know, stay under the radar as long as you can. Uh, don't look for fame or anything like or attention. Just, you know, uh, close the door, work, do your work and everything else comes later. If it's any consolation, I get a lot of criticism for things I've said when I was 21. <laughs> <laughs> but, but let's turn to Croatia. So Croatia is a place for business. Um, not a place who is hugely well known for its car industry, not a massive ecosystem of producers and component parts, I presume. How did, how did you do business there? Well, that was probably one of the hardest things where I probably made my life 100 times harder than necessary because I was so much wanted to do this in Croatia. No investors, no suppliers, no talent pool, zero, uh, in terms of experienced people, right. no customers. I, it was like doing it in the desert. And, you know, when I told you about this first term sheet, I couldn't find a lawyer who understands what the term sheet is and what, you know, basic terms like drag along, tag along. You know, we, we had to learn all of this stuff the hard way. And, and it's not just the big stuff like having people who have developed already cars in their past. It's also small stuff like when you grow a company fast, like you need all of a sudden 50 chairs. Uh, in Croatia, there is no warehouse where they have 50 office chairs. You need to wait for three months to get 50 office chairs, you know, like small stuff like that. Uh, or when you build a production building, there is no real experience in building production buildings in Croatia. So, you know, I had to deal with so many basics, which would have been easier otherwise. I'm proud that we managed to do it there, but also I'm not sure if I would, uh, going back in time, probably I wouldn't do it. I would probably take another destination just because it would have been easier. But Today, Croatia is a different country. Uh, I think we and some others have trailblazed it. You know, uh, now I hear a lot like from people now starting companies, fundraising. It's a whole nother world. Right. When they say they're from Croatia, where there is, you know, two unicorn companies, there's Infobip and Rimac. Uh, and everybody knows, ah, okay, these companies are from there. Oh, of course, I have heard of that, you know. Oh, okay, you have a startup ecosystem. So it's easier for investors to invest and recognize the country right. and so on. So you kind of, acted as a guinea pig, raising everyone to build this infrastructure. Well, I hope, yeah. And from us, you know, I mean, what Skype did to, to Estonia uh, after it was sold, there were many people because of stock options who all of a sudden had some capital. Plus, much more than capital, they had experience of building a global company. So we already have a lot of people who, you know, left and do, do their own thing. And I try to support them and help, help them. And there will be many more, and I hope there will be many more uh, becoming really rich and doing interesting things with that once we list the company uh, right. on IPO. Right, 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 right. And turning to another question, so you've built this infrastructure in Croatia, but also in, in, in other places. Uh, we know today that you know, a lot of uh, other car companies are trying to de-risk their exposure to China, for instance. Is that something that you see as, wow, we've built this infrastructure, can we now leverage it? Oh, yeah. I, I feel like... We just built the foundations okay. and now comes the house, you know. So uh, I never say that we have reached a goal or a success. I don't think that we are successful. I think we are on the pathway there and we are going in the right direction. And I never felt better about the 
company's trajectory and, and, and uh, position. And from here, you know, now after 15 years of building this foundation, that can really be leveraged. So, so you see a big market for the for Remac as a future uh, company. Is that, Absolutely. Is that selling cars or is that components? Because we, we always, I remember Tesla was one of the big questions as well. It's like, do we stop making cars because it's too hard yeah, and just yeah. focus on the components? Is that something that you're, you're, you're going through as well? Or? Yeah, both. Well, that's exactly the dilemma we had many times. And now with the Bugatti transaction, we separated the companies. So it's now Bugatti Rimac, which has the mission to make the world's best hypercars, right. which is a very beautiful niche but it's limited in growth. You know, you, you, if you're luxury and, you know, the pinnacle, you cannot produce 10 times more. Right. Then you're right, not right, anymore right. in the niche, sure, you know. Sure, sure, yeah. So we want to grow that. So that's around, let's say this year, it's 120 cars that we plan to do. That's around 400 million euros of revenue. Quite decent. And going from there, we will uh, expand that, but not, you know, we'll not get that 10 times bigger. Right. Rimac Technology is the bigger company where we develop and produce batteries and powertrains for other manufacturers. Uh, that's where the majority of the employees are. That has unlimited scale, basically, right. because you can make batteries for cars, you can make batteries for many different things, stationary storage for solar, uh, wind, and so on. And as humanity as a whole electrifies more and more, energy storage becomes super important. Because basically, you as a human, or we as you know, parts of the Western society, we have three uh, thirds of the energy consumption we have. It's transport, which is today gas mostly. It's heating, which is also uh, fossil fuels still today. And all the electricity that we use in our buildings. Um, what we will transition to as humanity as a whole, especially the Western civilizations, we will transition to the other two to electric as well. And to make that work, you need basically three times more energy, electric energy, covering for the fossil fuels. And there is huge opportunities. Uh, and I must say that's something that really crystallized in the last years. Uh, until now, it has been an uphill battle. And I always say, I, I don't know if it was COVID or Greta or whatever it was, <laughs> but the tide has changed. And now, you know, really everybody's pushing uh, to electrification. And so, and, and do you see, because with electrification goes also a number of minerals that are going to go up and things. Do, do you see a way of making the whole process much more sustainable? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's several elements to it, but when we talk about minerals, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Uh, the batteries in cars, the traditional cars, the 12 volt battery, the lead acid battery, it's toxic. But you know what the uh, recyclate in Europe is for, for these batteries? 99%. You know 99. Why? 99. Very simple. Money. You have some valuable materials in it. When you change your battery or when you dispose of your car, whatever, that thing always gets recycled because you get money for it. Very simple. Uh, same thing will be with uh, batteries, high voltage batteries in cars, in electric cars or in hybrid cars. They have valuable minerals in them. And once you replace the fleet of cars with electric cars, it will be a cycle where the same stuff will be going so around. Circular. around. It's completely circular. Just I think personally there will be less cars because it's very inefficient. If you look like at what, may, of course, we all love our cars. We want to leave our stuff in it. It's our car, you know. But as but an asset, it's underutilized. <laughs> absolutely. We use it 4 or 5% of the time. And for some people, it might be okay for, for rich people who want to have a car and don't care that it's totally underutilized and their second biggest asset in their life after their home 
is just standing there, not doing anything, fine, you can do it. But I think in the future, most of the people who will not want that big asset to stand around and not do anything will not own their own car. They will use it as a service. And then the utilization of cars will go from 4 or 5% to 60, 70, 80%. That's a different game. Asset. Yeah. Okay. Let, let me ask you something about uh, robo-taxi, because I know you're looking at that as well. I, I got really excited, but it must have been 10 years ago when people start talking about that. Loads of hype, loads of yeah, competitors. Yeah. You believe that robo-taxi have a role to play in mobility? Absolutely. I mean, it's the same with every new technology. It's like, you know, the uh, inflated expectations and then, the, you know, reality right. hits the same hype cycle with every, you know, big new technology. And we are now at the valley of the of the deflated right. expectations, uh, and now reality is kicking in. So we do work on Robotex. We have a separate company for that uh, under the radar, Silicon Valley uh, style stealth mode. Right. Um, so we didn't show anything. Uh, we are working on that for for quite a while now. Uh, we just got big EU grant for that, and I truly believe in it because it makes sense. I'm a believer in you know. Uh, reason and sense and what we talked about utilization of vehicles I think some t at some point it has to come to that you know of course the human factor plays a big role so you cannot just work in an Excel sheet and say okay this makes sense so therefore it will happen so one of the things that I think will not happen is these you know big toasters uh, that are just just basically like trains on rubber wheels where of course you know per unit of car, you have more people inside, but people don't want to share their private room. Of course, fine in some occasions to go in a train or a bus, but often you want to have your privacy and so on. So I think indivi individual robotaxi transport will be, uh, yeah. So I, I truly believe in that. Question is timing. Right. I think you can have working services within the next two, three years in geofenced areas, but, but substantial areas still like majority of the city, not not like super, super limited, um, but we'll see. Okay. And then maybe last questions, you know, you, you, you've, I mean, you've done so much. <laughs> it's, I know you, you describe it as 15 years of pain, but you've done, achieved an amazing thing. You get Porsche giving you the Bugatti brand, which is like Father Christmas, right? For if you like cars, where, where do you see, do you see Remac, which, whichever side, the component side of the car side, really playing a role in reshaping the way that the auto industry is going to develop, at least in Europe? I wouldn't say it's so grand. Uh, we are trying to do our best. I mean, it's three areas, right? Uh, Bugatti Rimac, that's more, let's say, the aspirational part. Right. It's, it doesn't move the needle in terms of emissions or anything like that with these few cars. That you, what, you can run them on coal, on coal, it wouldn't change a thing. Right. Uh, with the number of kilometers these cars are doing per year. So it's really crazy that the emissions apply to these cars, but it doesn't matter. But that's aspirational. That's what, like, you know, what I as a kid had on the, on the walls. Right. That, that's what inspires you and what's showing new technology. And it's interesting. So that's, I would say, guiding the, the way in terms of, you know, the, the top of, the, if you look at the auto industry as a pyramid, it's that top. Then the Rimas technology is helping the middle of the pyramid. So the premium manufacturers of Europe transition into electric. So helping them make the transition and not lose, you know, after Tesla and some right. other newcomers who might be a bit more agile and faster. So we are helping there with our technology and with our expertise to basically help the big brands transition to mostly European brands. And then at the bottom of the pyramid, 
we are working with robo taxis right where we want to provide a new solution which we think is the right solution we invested a lot of thought into it i can't wait to show it to the world uh where we think that's the way how people want to move in cities okay but you see the bulk of the money so if, if i take a parallel maybe there is potentially a way to be the as intel was inside for computers you could be the remac inside for most of the electric mobility in Europe, right? Exactly. That's what we use also as a, as a metaphor for ourselves, uh, but more for the premium segment. So, you know, there's lots of non-technology related things that you have to take into account when thinking about the automotive industry. One of them is that there is lots of jobs associated with that and lots of jobs associated with combustion engines and you have unions. So when you lose the jobs in combustion engine plants, what do you place them with? So even for some, I think it makes sense for the big manufacturers to make batteries and powertrains themselves. And they will do that for the bread and butter cars for their core products. We are helping them more on those cars where the technological differentiation is more important. Okay, okay. Yeah. Matej, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate having you here. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you.